Today, you're going to find out everything you wanted to know about sourcing products in China. How do you negotiate with the factories? What kind of things should you be aware of? You're going to find out this and more on today's episode of the Serious Sellers Podcast. How's it going, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the SSP, the Serious Sellers Podcast. And we have a great guest today, Steve Simonson here. He is, I don't want to say jack of all trades, master of none. He's actually master of all trades, jack of none, if, if that makes <laughs> sense. <laughs> so like, I, I really didn't know what I was going to, you know, I was like, Steve, I don't, I don't know what you know to talk about because you, you got so many levels of expertise and different levels. And so we finally decided about three minutes ago that we're going to talk about one that I need some help in because I don't have too much experience and that is sourcing about how to do that, you know, from China and different pitfalls that people do. So, so Steve, does that sound good? Can you talk to us a little bit about that today? No doubt. Uh, and although I would definitely say I'm not uh, necessarily a master of anything, I definitely have many years, uh, nearly 20 years of experience uh, sourcing from China. So I've, I've lived some painful lessons and I'm happy to share those lessons with everybody out there. That's awesome. And actually, I didn't, I didn't know that that was that extensive. So you're one of the ones, I mean, even those of us who have been around for like three, four years know how much the game has changed as far as just the Chinese market, the economy, regulations and things. So I can only imagine the difference in the last 20 years. Oh my gosh. I can tell you that, you know, back in, you know, 2002, 2003, we would have to travel in a car over the worst roads on the planet for like nine hours to get to a factory. And, you know, people, when you tell them, Hey, I'm going to China, I'm doing this, you know, sourcing trip or whatever. Even back then they said, Oh, you're living the dream. And it was a total nightmare at the time. Now today they've got the best bullet trains, the best freeways, uh, you know, internal transportation inside of China is world-class, but that's not how it always was. So I definitely have seen China expand in such a extraordinary way over the past, uh, nearly two decades that, uh, you know, I'm thrilled that everybody gets a much easier time and experiences China in a much better way today. All right. So how about, you know, before we get to the, the serious stuff, because this is the Serious Sellers podcast, that 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 just got me thinking. I, I bet you have some fun, fun stories. Like for me, like the thing that I didn't like, there's definite difference in cuisine from different areas of China. Like I was in Beijing and, and Shanghai and had some like hot pot, you know, over there it was great. But then whenever I was going to like, uh, I guess it's called like the Canton area or like, you know, Guangzhou and, and people invited me out to eat. I was like, there's like a bird's head with beak here. There's like a monkey heart or something. Like I was like, are you serious? This is what you guys are going to are serving. At? I'm not a picky person, but to me, I was like, this is, this is next level. stuff. this is like fear factor level stuff. They're trying to get me to eat. But what's some fun stories like that you could share going back the last 20 years? Well, I can, first of all, tell you that you're totally right. Uh, the, the different cuisine types across China are extraordinarily varied. And, you know, some of the people in the North have never eaten some of the things that the people in the South eat or the East or the West or even little sub areas. I can tell you that one of the most, I don't know, shocking moments at a, at a dinner, and I, I will preface this by saying I've, I've had my best meals in the world repeatedly in China. So it's out there. The good stuff is out there. And when I go to China, we eat like kings. It's extraordinary. But the, one of the most shocking times is we're at a restaurant. Uh, this is probably in the Jiangsu province. So kind of the center of China. And they show up with this um, 
this plate and on the front of the plate, the guy's hand is kind of still there with a towel. And on the end, it's kind of like this deep fried fish and you can see the tail there, but it's all kind of flayed open and, and deep fried. And basically you just take the chopsticks and you grab one of the, the nice little white pieces of meat. And I didn't quite understand the presentation because the guy's hands on there with the towel. Well, he takes this kind of wet towel away and the fish's head is still there and he's gasping for air. Like oh. that fish is still alive. Oh. And uh, it was like shocking. Oh my goodness. Yeah. That's, that's no bueno. <laughs> <laughs> it was just something else. And, and, you know, they made a big deal out of our host want to talk about how expensive that was and how unique and blah, blah, blah. And all I'm like, is like, you know, just put the fish out of its misery. Uh, and I, I do have to say it was delicious, but uh, yeah, it was shocking. Okay. All right. So that's, well, you're gonna have to let me know what that place was so I can avoid that in my journeys over there. All right. Now to the serious stuff, let's talk first about what everybody, you know, knows about. Everybody's probably heard of different things. You know, there's, there's EWU, there's, there's global sources fair. The Canton fair is one of the biggest ones. And what is the Canton fair for those actually who don't know? Yeah. So the Canton fair has been held, I don't know, at least for the last 60 plus years and they, they hold it twice a year. So this is probably in the 120, 130 range of the Canton fair in terms of the number of uh, fairs and it'll be coming up in April, 2019 and then October, 2019. And, and that same sequence, 2020, 2021 for forever, as far as I can tell. And it is massive. Um, the, the numbers of vendors and the numbers of booths and the number of square kilometers covered by exhibitions would, you know, just blow the mind. And it really is a very, very good place to go source for really almost anything in the consumer uh, space. So if you're, if you're outsourcing industrial aircraft parts or, you know, some sort of uh, crazy industrial stuff, maybe not the best place for you, but anything in the consumer space uh, between phase one, phase two and phase three of the Canton Fair, you are likely to find, a, you know, a number of sources to, you know, consider and then compare against each other all in a very concentrated time period and certainly concentrated space in Guangzhou uh, at the Canton Fairgrounds. Cool. So what's, what's one of the advantages of actually attending one of these as opposed to, you know, the kind of what we say, the newbie or the general idea is, oh, I'm just going to go to, you know, an Alibaba or an AliExpress or one of these websites and try and source. But why would you suggest to somebody to, you know, pay the $500, $700, you know, round trip ticket to, to actually attend in person? Well, it's, it will tell you uh, a lot of things that you never even considered and your learning will be accelerated so much faster than the, uh, you know, kind of back and forth on Skype or Alibaba or, you know, whatever those uh, communications methods are. It's the consolidation of the time and your ability literally to walk from booth to booth and compare precise details between the two suppliers. And, you know, just think about if anybody's ever ordered samples out there and it took them a while to get samples, you know, imagine being able to compare 10 different factory samples, you know, within the, within an hour's time period, literally just by walking up one row of an exhibition center. So you really get a much faster idea and understanding about the products, who they are. And then of course, the, the intangible part that nobody can really put into you know, precise dollars and cents, but, you know, seeing somebody face to face, reading their body language is an extraordinary advantage to figure out really who can you trust? That's, mm-hmm. that's a big deal to me. Okay. And uh, what's the extensiveness of this? Like, you know, we were just together at the, the Prosper show. There was 
100, 150 booths there, but I bet it's a little bit more than 150 booths at the Canton Fair. <laughs> yeah, I would. Um, I don't know the hard count of the booths, but it would be tens of thousands if you included all three uh, fair uh, amounts. And I can just tell you that like on a typical day, if I stay the entire day at the show, which at this point would be a, a real pain to me, but uh, I've done it, then I would walk somewhere around 12 to 15 miles in a day just up and down all of these booths. It is an extraordinary scale and something that people, until they see it, they don't fully understand it. Massive, massive, massive. And one of the other little fringe benefits is, you know, you may have in your mind, hey, I'm going to source, you know, pet products or baby products or automotive accessories or whatever it is. And then you walk by this one other booth that may be an adjacent or new idea. And you're like, you know, that's interesting. I haven't seen that, but you, you start to feel you know how the puzzle goes together on Amazon. You're like, hey, I could make something out of this. And you may walk away from the show with a totally unique and innovative idea that you never would have had going in had you not had the opportunity to physically see it, touch it, feel it, and so on. That's great. Now, how, how about just pricing in general? Like, are you usually able to negotiate better prices when you're in person like that, as opposed to negotiating over the internet? Well, uh, in general, I prefer to have that personal contact if you really want to get to the heart of the price. Um, and I would say it, it just depends on who you're talking to, either at the show or online. There are lots of trading companies that, that you know, pretend to be factories. There are lots of even retailers that pretend to be factories. And uh, so who you get the best price from is, you know, where you have the best relationship and the best set of uh, services that you expect. Uh, I'm not against trading companies, just to be clear. There are plenty of reasons why going through a trading company can make real, sense real for quick, you. Um, yeah, please. Can you explain You know that that's something that you know, even I now, I've been around for a little bit, no, but I, I believe there's a lot of people out there who don't understand that term. Like what's the difference between like, you know, trading company, factory, or whatever other, you know, terms that we might come across? Sure. So let's just start at the the basics. So there there are some people who are literally they're just like retailers and they go find factories, they buy wholesale and they try to sell it to us. And they, they always tell you they own the factory or they have an investment in the factory. Those are basically just, you know, people who are doing like wholesale arbitrage. They find a factory, they try to sell it to somebody somewhere around the world. And that's where you're going to find the least capable uh, in terms of scale, in terms of, you know, highest price. The, it's kind of the worst of the, the formula. I would try to stay away from those. The, the next level up is a trading company that specializes typically in a segment of products. So they won't just sell one single item. They will usually sell uh, a several, you know, a number of different items, but they're almost, almost always in the same types of verticals. So if somebody's selling, you know, home and kitchen products, that's what you're going to find a trading company instead of having, you know, five or 10 SKUs that a factory might produce. Um, not that factories can't produce more than that, but a narrow selection, a trading company might have hundreds of products. And I can tell you that there are very capable trading uh, agencies or trading uh, entities that are able to do a lot better sourcing and a lot better pricing than most um, buyers. And I'll give you one example. So a trading company can be either large or very small, and their capabilities are really what you need to judge them by, not just the the idea that they're called a trading company. That's a, a really big mistake people make. Uh, but I know a trading company in 
EWU, for example, and I believe they're they're clearing somewhere around sixty million dollars a year. And I went into their showroom, and they have thousands of products, by the way. I went into their showroom, and I I tried to guess what the cost should be. That you know, I'm a pretty pretty good buyer, sophisticated buyer. And I went in, and I was usually always willing to pay too much. Uh, so they, you know, they already had given us the price uh, list, and my my assistant had the price list. And I would say, well, I think that should be a dollar. And they're like, no, it's eighty cents. And I think that should be, you know, two dollars. And they're like, ah, it's a buck seventy-two. And so even you know, my own sophisticated buying doesn't prepare me to to know as much or have as much reach as a giant trading company. So trading companies are kind of the middle tier. And then, of course, the final tier would be buying from the factory directly. And everybody has this immediate idea that buying from the factory direct is always going to be the best price, always going to be the best service. And there are cases where that's true, but not in every case. And I just don't want people to think trading companies have no value because that, that trading company I just mentioned, by the way, Bradley, uh, I last had a meeting with them and before me, Walmart had a meeting with them. The guys from Walmart left, you know, and then I came in and then after me, it was somebody from some other big company uh, down in South America. I didn't know their name, but uh, anybody who's sophisticated in understanding global supply chain knows that trading companies have value, um, but it's not the only answer either. So I hope that helps. No, that does. And actually that's, you know, like I said, I'm a novice at this stuff too. And you just taught me something because the guys who, who, you know, were some of my older partners when I was in the, when I was in the game, they, they just had the, I don't know if I, I want me stereotype, I guess you could say, Hey, let's avoid the trading companies because you know, those guys aren't really the factory and it's going to be a more expensive and stuff. But you brought up an excellent point. You know, sometimes the, I had no idea that there's actually trading companies who are doing tens of millions of dollars. And at that level, they're actually able to negotiate, you know, even though that they're taking a cut because of their their buying power, they're able to probably even negotiate better deals and they have better market penetration with the factories to help you out. So that, that's, that's some great knowledge there because I think I've told people before, Oh, watch out for the trading company. So I've been doing it wrong. <laughs> well, not necessarily. I mean, there, there is a, so you make a very good point, by the way, that, that a large trading company with scale, uh, this particular company I was just mentioning, they have hundreds of employees. They have a massive warehouse and showroom you know, they really are a sophisticated company and they're buying, you know, in bulk or have deep relationships with these factories. So they get a better deal than we can get, certainly as a new buyer buying a thousand units or 10,000 units or whatever our initial order is. And that's, that's kind of the, the leverage is, you know, how much volume, that's what China understands is volume. And, you know, if you go to a factory and you're like, Hey, I'm ready to, you know, place an order for 500 units or even 5,000 units. They're like, cool, you know, wire us the money and, uh, you know, we'll talk later. But a trading company has a deep relationship. So I'm not saying only use trading companies. And I would say indeed that, you know, maybe less than 15% of our business will go through trading companies. Uh, and if it scales to, let's say, more than two or three million a year in purchases, we'll probably eliminate trading companies uh, by that time. But for all those out there who think, no, I, you know, trading companies are the worst, there is a part that they need to be considered. Okay, that's excellent. So... Talking about just in general now, not, you know, regardless of who, what kind of company or individual or entity you're dealing with in China, one thing that a lot of people have trepidation, or, or, trep, where in the world did I get that word? I, That's good. I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not a, I'm not a, a very, I don't have a very sophisticated vocabulary, but every now and then I surprise myself. <laughs> but anyways, <laughs> you so, me too. <laughs> something that gives people pause is the language barrier 
and the culture difference. So let's talk for, I mean, it's not a 30 second conversation. Let's talk for a few minutes about what are some things that we need to be aware of. And one funny thing that you had mentioned is, you know, actually a very famous Spanish political slogan back in the day, or I don't know, back was a si se puede. And then actually in America, I believe under, if I'm not mistaken, under President Obama's, it was like, yes, we can, which is the same thing now. Yes, we can, si se puede. For a Chinese company, if they say that, what does that mean? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that. So it's funny that you mentioned that. So uh, back in you know, when Obama was first running, right, they, he had the yes, we can. And I, I'm agnostic on politics. Couldn't care less. They don't make a difference in my life day to day. So I don't care. But I was in China at massive trade shows and they would have a big picture of Obama there with the yes, we can slogan. And, you know, that really is what the message from Chinese factories is to you. Yes, we can. And in Chinese, it's pronounced kai, kai. So when you ask them, you know, you know, can you do this for me? Can you make this for me? You, the, all the bosses, they'll say, kai, kai. yes, we can. And what yes, we can means in China can range anywhere from sure, no problem. We got that all the way to hell. No, that is not happening. And we are, you know, aghast and insulted that you even ask us that that's the range of what yes, we can means in China. Ah, interesting. So like, how do you differentiate then? Like, how do you know which, which end of the, end of the, end of the spectrum you're on? Let me know if you figure it out. Uh, the, the, the reality is the, you can only continue to ask qualifying questions. It's not a simple yes or no question. So as an example, if you're, you're looking at a product and you see it and you say, gosh, this thing would really be cool if I made this tweak or that tweak. And you ask them, Hey, can you make, you know, these adjustments or modifications? Often you'll hear, yes, we can. And then you have to go further and go, well, have you ever done anything like that before? Or can you show me some samples or give me some examples of, you know, something like that and, and really start to ask them questions and really push them to qualify that their, their comment back to you. And at some point you'll either get them to go, you know what, this is more complicated than we thought, or you'll actually get them to show that they can demonstrate their understanding of it. And I think that that's that collision of culture and language that you really have to push through to and don't make any assumptions that they are understanding what you're getting at. And if you speak with any colloquialisms, you know, regardless of what your native language is, if you go up and you're like, Hey, I just want to really do this really great. And, and you throw in a bunch of, you know, just nonsense words that don't really mean anything um, that you are not going to get very far with them. They'll, they'll smile. They'll be polite. They even may break out a chuckle or two along the way, but the comprehension may be, you know, below 20% of what you're talking about. So you really have to speak slow, ask them to repeat things back to you to make sure they understand it. And, you know, ideally you have somebody that you can trust in China who speaks the language who can really be your, your filter to make sure that, you know, what's going from you to them is actually the right uh, questions and answers. And that's usually the best case, uh, I believe. I'm sure probably now it's exponentially different, the number of people or the number of employees at different factories who can speak English as opposed to when you first started 20 years ago. But even with that, how important is it to to have like, you know, let's say they are going to Canton Fair to have a, a native speaker along with you translating or or even just in the negotiation part, you know, should is there at any point where it's not better to have a native speaker you know, try and handle the negotiations for you? So uh, that's one of the areas that you kind of have to be careful of. So number one, um, if you just go to Canton Fair 
you probably don't need a translator per se, because most of the booths will have English representation. That's not true necessarily at EWU or, or some of the other more uh, outside uh, types of trade shows. So uh, you won't have to have it there. Um, and if you do hire somebody there, you have to be careful because many of the translation services are just like sourcing slash trading companies in disguise. And this is the kind of trading company or sourcing company that I don't like where they basically put a you know set of vampire hook into you. They provide this translation, but you don't know that they negotiated one to 5% in there for them on the backside. You thought they were just, you know, explaining ah. you know, what you wanted. <laughs> so you have to really be careful of that kind of sneaky approach. So if you do have someone, or if you're able to find somebody who's on your own team or your uh, trusted service, then having that native, you know, Mandarin speaker, help guide you through the process or even Cantonese in the South is okay. Having them be your go-to and somebody you can trust. That's a real big thing. And it takes time to understand how to position that person and how to find that person. Okay. That's great. Any other switching away from just language, but just cultural things to be aware of, like things that would offend, you know, like every different culture has different ones. Like in some, Hey, don't, don't shake your hand of this because that's the hand you wipe your butt with or, or, you know, take off your shoes when you enter the house in Japan. I mean, every, every country has different things that, you know, Westerners might not come naturally to them. So what are some of the main ones that would help for people doing business with a Chinese company? Well, for me, I have to say that, you know, China is a very successful trading culture. And so you're very unlikely to offend, you know, a Chinese supplier uh, unless you kind of insult their price or their quality. Uh, I've, I've, I've watched uh, a colleague and he thought he was just being a tough negotiator, but he's sitting there insulting the quality of their product, trying to beat them down on price. And it's like, well, that's, that's not the way to do it. If, if they have poor quality, then don't buy it from them. Um, you know, if you want to negotiate, you need to find better ways of negotiating. So you shouldn't insult them in terms of their quality. It's okay to hold them accountable to quality. You know, being fair, but firm is fine, but don't insult them. I I think that's just a a global rule. It doesn't matter if it's China or anywhere else. Okay. That's good. Uh, That's good to know. What else? Yeah. On a trading culture side though, be aware that, you know, they're, they're very forgiving. They want to do business. Uh, but I would say if you, if it's your first time or first few times in China, if you go out to dinner with them or go out to lunch, you'll see they put on a big spread and they really want to impress you. It's a face culture. Um, so that's why they don't want to be embarrassed or insulted. But like you'll you'll be surprised maybe that, you know, at the dinner table, not only will they smoke, you know, but the way they chew their food with their open mouth and they're spitting on the plate and, you know, kind of hawking loogies. It's it's a real crazy different culture. And so uh, I love China. I love the people. But you just have to prepare yourself. You know, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. You don't have to spit and, you know, do all the other things that they're doing, but just know that's part of uh, their culture and, and, you know, try not to get, take it personal yourself. I, I think that's where I've seen more people uh, have the culture shock is, is uh, understanding how the Chinese operate inside of China. That's good to know. When people think of, you know, negotiating, you know, like in a, in a Chinatown, let's say everybody has been to like San Francisco, Chinatown, LA, you know, New York, and they're used to like haggling with prices. now. Is because, you know, there's a standard like, hey, if they start at this price, you can go like this percentage down. But like actually in China itself, is it similar where there's this whole kind of built in haggling that has to be done or or how does that work? Like either either looking at Alibaba or, you know, in person negotiating with a factory, the first price that you see, how 
how much should we consider having to haggle? Well, you know, I would say at the China fake markets where they have all the Louis Vuitton stuff, then yes, it's just like you described in New York or LA or any of that other haggle, uh, haggle-rific areas. Um, for factories, you know, it's hard to say if there's a set number because some factories will quote you a reasonable price up front uh, and other factories will, uh, particularly those, those quote-unquote retail people I talked about earlier, they'll quote you, you know, the sky's the limit kind of price. And so to me, the only way you know price, and this is a, a real big takeaway for anybody keeping score at home, this is the one to kind of remember. Make sure that you know the market price. It doesn't matter what the factory says the price is. It matters what the market says. So never expect one factory to set the price of a product for you. Go get three quotes or five quotes or whatever. Push them and go, you know, based on this quantity, you know, and by the way, you can kind of push them towards a container quality, then backtrack and go, well, I just need a, you know, a sample starter set of a thousand or 2000 units. I don't need the full container, but I'll take that price, you know, push them on at this quantity and with this quality level, you know, what's my price and then compare apples to apples. That's the only way to really know the market price. Uh, and I've had factories give me very aggressive pricing out of the gates, particularly if I've known them for a while. And I've had factories where we've been able to improve by 40 to 50% the price over the course of time by you know shopping around and buying from other places, including getting terms in China, by the way. So all of those are negotiable points. Speaking of you know like terms and just pain and things, that is, I would say, one of the questions I see most in like Facebook groups and things like, Hey man, how, how much can I, you know, even the ones that don't go in person, you know, I'm doing this, you know, negotiation on Alibaba. Do I need to use their, their guarantee or, or do I do the PayPal guarantee or like they're, they're nervous about, you know, for many, it's their first time sending money overseas. You know, maybe they've, maybe they've heard some horror stories, but tell us about, you know, how safe is making transactions on these websites or what can sellers do to protect themselves? Well, certainly if you're using the, you know, Alibaba kind of uh, escrow type service or things like that, that's going to be pretty secure. I think in general, uh, China's fairly secure. You know, if you send them money, they're probably going to send you something. Um, you know, I'm a big believer in knowing what you get before it ships. So, you know, if you're not paying for an inspection process, at least a pre-inspection before the ships process, then I think you're missing a massive part of your supply chain. I mean, that is such a mistake. And people always tell me, well, you know, gosh, I don't want to pay, you know, a couple hundred dollars or whatever it is. And it's like, you know, the order is worth 20,000. And if it shows up and it's all garbage, what are you going to do? You're out that money. So, and that has happened. So I don't think that China steals money um, that, you know, although I've heard the, you know, some horror stories and tales, in general, you'll just get a crappy product if you're not vigilant about it. So in general, you know, be cautious with who you're doing business with. Be prudent. If your spidey sense starts tingling, then take, you know, even extra steps like using the escrows or whatever. But in general, you're going to get something. I think more people miss the idea of the inspection process and making sure that they develop good specifications for their product so they know what they're getting ahead of time. That's where the mistakes are really made. Okay. That's, that's a good, that's a good uh, thing to know about. I think that is something that a lot of people skip and it's very important that they know that it's, you know, it's not, it's not a skippable thing. Don't try and cheapskate your way. Cause you'll get bit later on. So with that in mind, let, let's say somebody has $5,000 to invest for, they're going to launch on Amazon. So 
how much of that, regardless of it's, if it's 1000, 5,000, 10,000, hundred thousand on one product, what would you allocate to the actual, you know, keeping in mind, Hey, they're going to have to do PPC. They might have to, you know, whatever they're going to do for launch. There's transportation costs, but how much would you say a percentage should they allocate to the actual investment of the product itself? Oh, that's interesting. I get to do like a virtual profit loss statement here. Um, So, you know, I would say just in general that, you know, 50% going to your landed cost of your product. So landed cost, uh, sometimes people refer to this as DDP pricing, deliver and duty paid pricing. That's the price basically to get your product produced to your specs, including shipping, including inspections, all of that landed to its final destination like an Amazon FBA warehouse, that's your landed cost. That should be around half of your opening uh, gambit. And then the other half should be on kind of marketing and launch uh, functions in in my opinion. Okay. That's good to know. Let's see. What else can we talk about? Oh, another, another going, switching back to like things that people I see that are, are scared about. A lot of things is like, Hey, how do I make sure that the factory is not just going to backdoor my product, try and sell it themselves or sell it to somebody else who's going to end up in hijack my listing? <laughs> well, once again, uh, let me know when you figure that one out. Uh, so listen, we do have, we have contracts with some factories for exclusive distribution. We have uh, in some products, there will be patents or other intellectual property protections, but we have to be honest with ourselves. And, and I find this so often that, you know, we go and rip off somebody's product and then we are like beside ourselves when somebody has the audacity to do the same thing to us. And so the idea is don't rip off somebody's products. Um, find something that's cool, maybe two somethings, mash them up or iterate, do something different with the product, and then you know get the get the sales trajectory going. You can be candid with your factory and say, hey, I want you to sign a, a non-compete or a you know an exclusive distribution or whatever it is. You know, the chance of them actually enforcing that is fairly low unless you have big scale. We do have some suppliers that we have pretty ironclad deals with, and we know how to structure those even in China to make them enforceable. But out of the gates, I wouldn't worry too much. I would just tell the factory, you know, first of all, I want an exclusive distribution on this item for whatever your marketplace is. And most factories will agree to it. Make sure you put it in writing. And technically, it should be in both Chinese and English. That's one way to at least keep the factory on the sidelines. You know, if you tell them also they can't sell into your market area because of that exclusive distribution, again, that should keep them away. But there's a thousand other factories who may make the same thing. It's not going to keep hijackers away entirely. So it's it's an incremental process that you kind of just put each of these little blocking and tackling pieces in place. And then over time, you, you kind of have a, a nice defense around you. All right. That sounds good. Steve, like I said, you're the man as far as you know sourcing goes and we could, we could have another hour conversation just on some of these. And so we're definitely going to want to have you back here. I'm sure, you know, this has answered a lot of questions that many have had, but if there's anyone, I'm sure there's also other questions though, that have arisen that people would like to ask you. So how can people get a hold of you? How can they possibly get your help with the sourcing process? And I believe you also, you know, one of our most popular episodes we've had so far is from your brother from another mother, Kevin King who had come on in one of our earlier episodes and you got something exciting coming up with him that maybe you can talk a little bit about as well. 
Yeah, no doubt. So uh, if uh, the folks out there want to kind of keep track of what Kevin King and I are up to, they can go to kevinandsteve.com. And we're hatching up, uh, I would say, quite an interesting and unique uh, idea. It's not a course. It's not a software. It's not a membership. It's not anything that anybody's ever seen. It's something totally cool and unique. And and we're excited about it. It's infinitely not scalable. Very, very difficult for us. And that's why there's a, a little bit of a, a time uh, build up here because it's extraordinarily difficult. So that's kind of one way to keep in touch. The other way is I, you know, dedicate most of my free time for um, entrepreneurs to the Empower e-commerce cooperative. And if you go to empowery.com slash contact or just empowery.com, you'll be able to, you know, get messages into me. Often I will uh, post replies to those on message boards or whatever. I don't do one-to-one stuff because I uh, am busy, but uh, I love entrepreneurs and any way I can find to help entrepreneurs via the, the e-commerce co-op or, you know, online methods, podcasts, whatever. I love entrepreneurs. So I, that's what I, I try to dedicate some of my time to. All right. Well, thank you very much again, Steve. And we're going to have to have you out here. Once we open our new office, we got a, a tequila tasting room and we're going to have you maybe do some, uh, take a shot every 10 minutes and just see how the conversation progresses under those circumstances. <laughs> well, if you did, that would be quite a record because, uh, uh I don't drink alcohol, but, uh, that would be quite a show if you could make it happen. <laughs> All right. Sounds good. <laughs> thanks, Bradley. Appreciate it. All right. Thanks a lot, Steve. Talk to you later.